you'll have extra time to go. Uh, I, I played in the rugby union game against uh, Moore College some years ago and um, was completely hopeless. It's the first game that I played, I think, for 22 years, I think it was at that stage. Uh, but if you have a chance to play, it's, it's great fun. They're big, old and fat. <laughs> Which means that they hurt when you tackle them, but that's okay. Uh, they're also theological students who they always feel very superior. And so to beat them is a really great thing to do. So, <laughs> not that you know I feel anything about this. Uh, secondly, by way of introduction, um, I hope you had a good break on Tuesday and did no work. You've had this is a three-day week for most of you, I suspect, and um, that's good because we're going to work especially hard. Uh, probably a one-day week if you're an art student. Uh, uh, we're going to work especially hard today. In coming to terms with Matthew chapters 21 and 22, we're going to be covering a lot of text in Matthew's Gospel. Not only in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be referring to the several dozen Old Testament texts which you need to have in the background if you're going to understand Matthew 21 and 22. So today is a big talk. Uh, Tough. Jesus was a big person. So there you go. Let's pray and ask that he'll be with us and strengthen us for our time together this afternoon. Heavenly Father, your goodness and mercy and grace to us are new every day. And we pray that as we seek to see Jesus in all his majesty and power and authority and grace, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Give us clear minds and uh, willing hearts that we would see believe and obey. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now I want you to imagine that you're watching the evening news tonight. Uh, The lead story concerns two remarkable criminal acts that occurred simultaneously today. At Australian Consolidated Press, publisher of a fleet of women's magazines, among them fashion leader Vogue, a large woman made larger by stuffing pillows down her front, had walked into the offices of ACP, thrown bricks into a number of the computers on which journos were writing their stories and proceeded to take out of her oversized handbag multiple packets of Tim Tams, hand them around to astonished staff and then to begin began to eat her own packet, stuffing Tim Tams upon Tim Tams into her mouth with a wicked and slightly oversized grin on her face. At the same time, in the heart of the central business district, a man wearing a business suit with what appeared to be a shark's fin attached to his back stormed into the control room of the stock exchange, unplugged the power supply, sending brokers into panic and confusion, after which he extracted a large quantity of $100 bills from his wallet and gave them out to incredulous onlookers on the floor of the exchange before being arrested by security staff. Soon after power was returned and order restored and the story closes by noting that it turned out that these two were married. Perhaps they deserved each other. Now, if you're watching these stories, you're thinking, what the... You can imagine your response might change from one of surprise and amusement, well, that's, that's kind of interesting, to one of delight and even fist-pumping joy as it gradually dawns on you what's going on. You realise that these acts were designed to be momentary protests, demonstrations against two symbols, two 
symbols which represent two key cultural realities of modern Western life, the fashion industry and rampant paper profit capitalism. And you understand the acts because you understand the symbols, what they represent. And what the critique of them is, and at least in, at least in part, what is the alternative proposed by the protester. Now what we're going to do this afternoon is look at two key episodes from Matthew's Gospels, Matthew's Gospel at the start of the last week of Jesus' life. Two symbolic action, two acts of protest, much like our wacky couple. Uh, then very briefly the riddles which occupy the rest of chapter 21 and 22 which make the same point verbally which was made symbolically in these two key acts. So we're going to look at most of our time on the acts and then rush through with some haste. We'll see how far we get in the riddles. Now we're picking up the story in Matthew's Gospel at chapter 21. Let me briefly fill you in on the journey so far. And uh, this really covers the story of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke overall. Jesus begins his public life at one. That line next to one on the left there briefly is a river. Can anyone tell me, and this is an NRQ, a non-rhetorical question, what river that might be? Ah, look, you're so much more intelligent. Yesterday, they were just like stun mullets. The Wednesday group, they're, they're thick as two bricks. And, um, but you're far more intelligent. And, and I'm speaking to you, so that's why I say that. Uh, immediately, Jesus is baptised. He goes north to two into Galilee moving from town to town, including a short trip further north into Syria. It's there that Peter's confession or declaration of Jesus as the Messiah takes place and after that he sets his face, Wooshka, down to for Jerusalem. It's a fairly straightforward itinerary that by foot, naturally the way you would have done it, by foot takes around three years. Now what is Jesus doing all this time? Well, he's doing nothing less than proclaiming and enacting the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. That is the reign of God. That God is returning to clean up the mess and restore his people. And it's summarised in Jesus' mission statement which you see in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. That's like the trigger for him to kind of get going. He left Nazareth and made his home at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, that tells you what Zebulun and Naphtali were like, have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now the thing is that Jesus turns on his head the vision of what the kingdom of heaven was going to mean and so the whole show for Jesus has gone completely pear-shaped. There have been a number of people who claimed to bring in the kingdom previously. There were some people who claimed to bring in the kingdom subsequently to Jesus who attracted mass crowds who all followed him and, uh, and led, in fact, uprisings against Rome. But instead of Jesus being welcomed, he is being wasted. At least that's the intent of the leaders of Israel. And it is this conflict, a conflict between two visions of how God does his thing that comes to a head in Jerusalem in this last week of Jesus' life. As he storms the capital, 
he does so in a very deliberate manner. Pick it up, chapter 21 and verse 1. When they come to Jerusalem and have reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them. Which no doubt would suffice if someone was seeking to borrow your car. And he will send them immediately. Now, as I say, this chapter marks the end of Matthew's Gospel and the beginning of the end for Jesus. Jesus is fully aware of this, having told his disciples three times that he is going to die in Jerusalem, most recently just in the previous chapter, verses 18 and 19. And as I say, in Matthew's narrative, this is the first time that Jesus makes an appearance at Jerusalem. It's a bit like President Bush coming to Australia, doing the rounds of such urban giant centres as Wagga Wagga, Bendigo and that centre of cultural activity Tamworth and altogether sidestepping Canberra and Sydney. Now significantly Jesus goes resolutely to Jerusalem and the sense of showdown, of confrontation is very strong. Almost comically Jesus is very deliberate about his mode of transportation having walked hundreds and hundreds of kilometres along dusty roads. Now he all of a sudden he decides he's got to enter Jerusalem riding on the first century equivalent of a moped riding a donkey. In fact, he's so fixated about it that he halts his progress from Jericho, which is 25 kilometres to the east of Jerusalem, stops at the Mount of Olives, just across the valley from the temple, you can see it right there, and he gives some uh, precise instructions to his disciples to go get me my moped. Now, why is riding on a donkey so crucial to Jesus that he would stop, wait, hang about for, what, a day, two days, and only then make the rest of his journey. What's so crucial is that it fulfills the scriptures concerning the coming king or Messiah. Whenever you read Messiah in uh, the, the Gospels, don't think second person of the Trinity, think king. King, Messiah, Messiah, King, Meshua, the Hebrew word for Messiah, simply means anointed one, the one who got anointed. Uh, that is, oil poured over you which doesn't sound like a pleasant experience to you, but I understand in dry and dusty places like the Middle East was a very wonderful thing to be dumped with a bucket of oil. And that's how they, that's how they ordained or, or, or coronated their kings. They anointed them with oil. They messiahed them. So messiah and king actually just really mean the same thing as each other. Verses 4 and 5, this took place notes Matthew, to fulfil what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The idea of the fulfilment of scripture is a real favourite of Matthew's, and he employs it a number of times throughout his gospel. But notice, the idea is not so much that there was a well-known predefined grid, a, a pattern which the one who was going to be the Messiah had to fulfil like those computer games where you're flying a plane and if you shoot the right things or if you pass over the right places then you, you pick up extra fuel or ammunition or something like that. So, that so that everyone in Judea was kind of on the lookout to see who would pass all the relevant tests and, and, and get the prize doesn't, doesn't work like that rather what was well known to Matthew and the disciples was that Jesus was the Messiah. And as the Gospel writers looked back and as Jesus did his thing, 
they could see from the pattern of his life the scriptural prophecy which Jesus had fulfilled. And the thing that's important about this is that Jesus broke so many of the popular expectations of the Messiah from the Old Testament that it really was a live issue whether or not he did in fact fulfil prophecy. It wasn't obvious. If it was obvious, everyone would have just sort of said, hey, welcome. But they did not. Why? Because they thought he was leading astray Israel. That he wasn't fulfilling prophecy in the way that they expected him to. Now, what's the content of the scripture which this mulish mode of transportation fulfilled? Two Old Testament texts are quoted. The first line is from Isaiah 62, while the rest of the quote is from Zechariah chapter 9. Isaiah 62, Zechariah chapter 9. Essentially, those two chapters say the same things to the same context. Even though God appears distant and impotent, and the enemies of his people wield all the power, politically dominating and forcibly oppressing them, God himself is coming to Jerusalem to fix things up. That's the prophecy. He himself will vindicate his people by coming to them as a king to defeat their enemies and establish his rule. But there are two things to notice about this kingly victory and dominion. Unlike other military campaigns, its outcome will be peace, not oppression. That's what we're struggling with in Iraq at the moment, isn't it? That whether the outcome of that military campaign was actually more peace or more oppression. But here the outcome of God's military campaign will be peace. A peace which is so comprehensive that it marks the end of war itself. And secondly, this peace is not just simply for God's people, the Israelites, but rather it's for all nations. Let me read to you Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bows will be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And what grounds and guarantees that fact is that uh, this... Sorry, what grounds and guarantees the fact that this victory will bring peace rather than simply more oppression and a universal peace rather than a merely sectarian one lies in the character of the king who leads the campaign. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. List low, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he. That sounds like George Bush, doesn't it? Triumphant and victorious. That's what, that's what happened to Iraq. But notice the next phrase, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Because this king is humble, symbolised in the moped riding on a donkey, so his victorious triumph will be for peace for everyone. In other words, you see what's happening. When Jesus stops outside Jerusalem, goes, gets his donkey, and in order that he can arrive in Jerusalem in precisely this way, he's saying for all those with ears to hear, in a massively powerful symbolic action, like stuffing fistfuls of tin tams into your mouth in the middle of a vogue conversation the salvation that God has promised so long ago has finally turned up check it out, says Jesus God's anointed king has arrived God's Messiah has arrived here I am Jesus is saying in unmistakably powerful language the language of symbol anyway 
the way he tells it is the way it happens. The disciples do just what they're told. They even improvise a little bit along the way. They find the donkey and the colt. The person buys the fact that the Lord has need of them. And going beyond their instructions, they put a saddlecloth on the, the donkey and the, and the foal in order to make it more comfortable for Jesus. What's more, it turns out that plenty of people that day did have ears to hear. Others who were going up to Jerusalem, perhaps pilgrims also on their way to celebrate the Passover, notice the Passover is just coming up in a week's time, recognise the significance of this symbolic action. And they add their own. They literally pave the way. You know that phrase, pave the way? It's about paving. Yeah. Science here. They pave the way for Jesus as he rides. They spread either their cloaks, their coats, or branches from trees before him. And that's a gesture of submission. The garments representing themselves under, literally under, his kingly authority. And to this gesture they add their confession. Verse 9 of Matthew 21. The crowds that went ahead of him and the followers were shouting, Hosanna! Which means, praise be, praise be to the son of David. Who's David? Anyone know who David is? Thank you. Ah, David, yes, there he is. Praise be to the son of David, there he is. No, David was a king of Israel, the great king of Israel, and the king who was to come would be the son of David. Praise be to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This riding on a donkey is a massively significant statement by Jesus as to his identity. He's claiming an identity for himself. But the, the speed of the response of the crowds who come with Jesus into Jerusalem kind of acts as a contrast, a foil, to the people of the city itself. They don't have eyes to see and they don't have ears to hear and their only response at this point is to be thrown into a turmoil uh, or, or literally a seismos is the Greek word. An earthquake. There's an earthquake that takes place in Jerusalem. A, a human earthquake. And the question, who is this? Now we know the answer to that question, don't we? We know who Jesus is. He is God's King, the Son of David, the Messiah. But as the week progresses, how are they going to answer that question? Who is this? He did, he's one who deserves death. Okay, that's symbolic action number one. Let's move to the stock exchange. Symbolic action number two is when Jesus starts to implement his program as king. Verse 12. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now that is a crazy thing to do. I mean you've waited a couple of days while you get your donkey, you walk into the temple, you get there, it's a massive kind of thing, it's you know just this vast sort of place full of courtyards, people doing stuff. And, and, and he goes berserk. Is this, is this Jesus the Marxist lashing out against merchants and capitalists before heading off to a meeting of radicals against the world economic order and talking a lot? Or, or maybe this is Jesus on the ultimate bad hair day. Uh, perhaps the, the mule was still uncomfortable even though the cloaks were on it and he had a sore bottom and he's just he's freaking out a little bit. In order to understand the true meaning of what Jesus is doing, we need to understand the meaning of the symbol that he is disrupting, which is the temple. So stay with me for a little bit while I tell you what the temple is about. Not just a big church, where people went to church, it was more than that. What did it signify? Well, two things. Firstly, the temple was the place where God dwelt. 
the temple was a house for God. In his great love for his people, he was with them specially. He wasn't just all around the place, airy-fairy, no, just God is everywhere, no. God had an address. Uh, the temple, Jerusalem. And people knew where that was. It occupied about a third of the city of Jerusalem. Okay? The entire North Shore. And the eastern suburbs. You know what I mean? Just a massive quantity of land in Jerusalem was taken up by the temple. This was true for the tabernacle, that large portable tent which uh, the escapees from Egypt constructed and carted around with them for those 40 years. And it's also true of the permanent structure of the temple when it was being unveiled and dedicated by Solomon. The priests bring the Ark of the Covenant, a, a chest or sort of a large suitcase with two stone blocks in it, the Ten Commandments written on them. They bring that into the temple and then in 1 Kings chapter 8 uh, we read, When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests would not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the, of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. What's the effect of the cloud? Make everything dark. Where's the Lord dwelling? Here. This is his address. I have built you an exalted house, says Solomon, a place for you to dwell in forever. Okay, now because that's where God dwelt, that meant that the temple had a key activity which took place, namely the sacrifices that were made in its precincts. If you wanted to do business with God, you did it in the temple and you did it by offering sacrifices. If you wanted to celebrate his goodness or his mercy or give thanks for blessing that you'd received, on the one hand, or on the other hand, if you wanted to get right with him, to seek forgiveness for your sins, for either of those two things, you had to go to where God was. You went to the temple and you offered a sacrifice. The whole purpose of the temple was summed up in the day by day, week by week, month by month, month cycle of sacrifices. And so to attack the sacrificial system was to attack the temple itself. Do you see that? That's the key point. To attack the sacrificial system is to attack the temple itself. Okay, so now you get Jesus' actions, don't you? Jesus' actions are no longer the equivalent of a tourist's temper tantrum, kind of outraged at the disruption to meditative worship by the sale of teaspoons and tea towels at the back of a European cathedral. No, Jesus is launching a quite specific and calculated attack on the temple and its sacrificial system. When you went to the temple, often enough you didn't take your sacrifice along with you. It took a long time to get there. You might travel for a couple of days. You take your, you know, your sheep and might die on the way. Uh, and so you'd go there and then you'd buy your sacrificial animal when you arrived. Hence, Jesus drives out those who were buying and selling. He stops them from offering sacrifices. If you came from another country, you might well need to do a little bit of currency shuffling or simply get change for your purchase. Hence, he overturns the tables of the money changers as well as the seats of those who sold doves. Doves were kind of the student's option for sacrifice. If you didn't have enough money to buy a you know, decent-sized sacrifice, a, a good thumping great two-ton ox, well, you could sacrifice this little weedy bird instead. That would do the job for you because you're just a poor student. And so, um, in each case, what Jesus does, right, is a specific, deliberate, calculated, 
if presumably temporary, disruption of the temple's sacrificial system. It is an attack, a judgment on the temple. It's not cleansing the temple. Jesus, what do you cleanse things for? Uh, you clean your clothes in order to wear them again. You clean your cups in order to use them again. You clean things in order to make them better for next time. Jesus isn't cleansing the temple. Jesus is judging the temple, condemning the temple, symbolically destroying the temple. Now, why should he do that? I mean, he's a good Jew. Temple's what God said. It was God's command that it be built. Well, it may be that Jesus' actions in the temple there speak louder than his words, but it's his words that speak more clearly. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, classically, for Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament again. And so we're going to need to go and check out those two Old Testament quotes that he has here, running together two allusions from the Old Testament which indicate what he sees to be wrong with the temple and therefore what provoked his anger. The first is taken from Isaiah chapter 56. Take note of that, Isaiah chapter 56. A remarkable chapter which speaks of when the time again when God delivers his people. And again, the issue is the place of the rest of the world in the purposes of God. At that time, distinctions which had previously excluded people from God will no longer apply and all that matters will be a heart for obedience. Check it out. Listen to this. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. Best not to think about that too much. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So on and so on and so on. Same with the foreigners. These, verse 7, I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Foreigners and eunuchs who choose the things that please God and hold fast to his covenant, who otherwise would be unclean, unacceptable. Get any, any foreigners here, any non-Israelites in this room? Hands up if you're non-Israelite. Get up! You're not allowed here. I mean, how would that feel? Any eunuchs? Oh no, don't answer that question. You know what I mean? And, and God says, no, in the time of rest, when I fix things up, those distinctions won't apply anymore. Everyone will come into my house of prayer. That's the way things ought to be in God's kingdom, but the reality is far different. For that he alludes to a second Old Testament passage, namely Jeremiah chapter 7. It is a ferocious denunciation of Israel and her presumptuous hypocrisy. Jeremiah reels off a list of the sins with which he charges Israel. And yet at the same time, they remain confident of their security because they have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, if they've got God's house in their suburb, then that's the ultimate not-in-my-backyard kind of experience, right? If you've got God's house in, his place, in, your, in your backyard, then everything's cool. 
chapter 7 of Jeremiah verse 9, here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are safe? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? And then God says, what I think is probably one of the most chilling things you could ever hear God say to you in this kind of accusatory tone. Ready? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Most importantly, Jeremiah goes on to warn them that if they do not repent, if they do not amend their ways, then in his wrath God will destroy that temple in which they place such confidence, even his temple and remove his presence from them. And now because you've done all these things, verse 13 says the Lord of Jeremiah 7, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore I will do to you, so I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh, that pile of rubble that you could go and visit in Israel. And by alluding to Jeremiah, Jesus is saying loudly and clearly, that the Jews of his day and especially the religious hierarchy represented the temple are no better than in Jeremiah's day. Like the Israelites of Jeremiah's day, the scribes and the chief priests think that the temple is a safe place, a den of robbers, a hideout where they can escape detection and justice. But in Jesus' symbolic action and in his explanatory words, he is saying you can run but you can't hide. The whole system of the temple and its sacrifices which were supposed to be for repentance and forgiveness of sins for all people has instead been perverted into exactly the opposite. That way of being the people of God which you represent is coming to to an end. You stand under the judgment of God. I'm God's king. Come to claim my throne and my people. And so he shows his hand. The temple was supposed to be the place of God's presence and cleansing, but no longer is it the temple, it is he himself. Matthew 21, verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. And they hear the children crying out to him, Hosanna, praise be to the son of David. King and temple... Messiah and the cleansing blessing of God. These are the substance of Jesus' purpose in Jerusalem. That's what he's come to claim and to be. And during the rest of this chapter, chapter 21 and the next, Jesus hammers home those two same points with relentless force. Each of the episodes makes the same point. I don't know if you thought about Jesus as having intentions and thoughts and, and you know, a plan and a program Um, Jesus didn't just kind of get born, hang around for 33, 30 years, start to do stuff because he wanted to hang around for another three years and then die. He had a a plan, an intention. What was it that he thought he was trying to do? Did he think that he was just... I mean, if he wanted just to die, why didn't he go just jump off a cliff somewhere? That would have been a sacrifice for sins, wouldn't it? What was he actually trying to do? It's worth asking that question of yourself. What do you think Jesus was trying to do? Was he, was he trying to achieve anything? 
The answer to that question is okay. So no, you're as bad as yesterday. Actually, they when I asked that question, they just were stunned mullets as well. No, or yes, <laughs> he was trying to do something. He was king. He's the Messiah. He's come to judge God's people and to replace those things which constituted God's people, especially the temple, with himself. And the riddles which come in the rest of chapter 21 and 22 make the same point. You see, for example, in chapter 21, verse 18. In the morning when he returned to the city, he was hungry. Um, And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing on it at all but leaves. And then he said, May no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. This is a greenies nightmare, isn't it? I mean, what's Jesus doing here? He's just trashing perfectly... I mean, it's a good tree. Straight after Jeremiah's warning in chapter 7, God says in chapter 8 of Jeremiah... They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They acted shamefully, they committed abomination, yet they were not at all ashamed, they did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall amongst those who fall. At the time when I punishment them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I wanted to gather them, says the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. You get the point? This is national Israel under judgment. A barren tree. And Jesus uses out, uses an acted out parable, that is what he does to the fig tree, to explain an acted out parable, that is, his symbolic overthrowing of the temple by disrupting it. And his explanation of the fig tree makes the same point. Chapter 21, verse 21. Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, If you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. Now what's happening here? Jesus, he's going along, he's doing his Messiah thing, he's doing his temple thing, and then he says, hey, now's the time for a bit of random discussion about the nature and character of prayer. Okay? No. This is not just some abstract teaching about prayer. Jesus in all likelihood is standing in the shadow. Now, this is a real history question. Who knows on what the temple was built? A big mountain. Zion. Mount Zion. Okay? So Jesus is standing in the shadow of a big mountain with a temple on the top of it and says, if you even say to this mountain... this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea it will be done what Jesus is saying of course is that there's a much more concrete reference than to abstract uh, teaching about prayer it is the temple which will be overthrown if you pray you will not only see national Israel judged but the temple itself will be destroyed is what Jesus is saying the meaning is even deeper Check out Zechariah chapter 4 for a prophecy of a Davidic king in in the case of Zechariah, Zerubbabel, before whom there is a big mountain. And the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4 is that this big mountain, this mountain will be flattened to make way for a temple that Zerubbabel will build instead of the temple on that mountain. 
And Jesus is saying by this words and actions, that's me. You see it again in the next episode, the question about the nature and source of Jesus' authority. Chapter 21 and verse 23. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now Jesus gives them a stunning answer in the form of a, of a question which leaves them dumbfounded. Okay, but again, what's going on is more than just fascinating, brilliant, verbal sparring by Jesus that he can, he's so smart that he can show everyone else how stupid they are. No, no, this is part of his program too. He keep, he's telling very important things about who he is. He speaks of John the Baptist and asks whether John's baptism was from heaven or merely earthly. Now back in chapter 11, Jesus has described John the Baptist as Elijah returned. The last great prophet predicted by Malachi. And you know who comes after the last great prophet that's predicted by Malachi, prophesied? Last prophet? King. That's how it runs. Prophet, 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 prophet. Last prophet? Messiah. King. In other words, by referring back to John... Jesus is saying that he has authority to act in the temple the way he did, to judge it, because he's the only one who can judge the temple. He's the Messiah who has come after the final prophet, John the Baptist. And he's got authority because John has anointed him with the Holy Spirit in his baptism, given authority by none other than God himself. The next parable makes the same point with almost the same structure. John was the final prophet before the Messiah in the parable of the wicked tenants. Remember, there's a landowner who rents out his place. They've got wicked tenants. They don't give to the landowner what's due to him. He sends a messenger. He sends a messenger. They kill. He sends a messenger. Finally, he sends the son. What does he do when they kill the son? He goes in and just takes away and, and destroys those wicked tenants. John was the final prophet before the Messiah. In the parable, there's a long line of messages and then finally the son. And the point is that although they kill the son, yet the landowner will come in terrible judgment. Verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. Who are the wretches in the parable? Exactly the same people that he's been dealing with all along, the false leadership that Israel has that has already been symbolically judged in the temple action. Okay. You need to read the rest of chapter 21. And 22, and see that Jesus makes the same point again and again. There's a fascinating episode uh, to do with um, a coin and uh, that you should render unto Caesar, which is Caesar's. Now again, is that, does Caesar sort of move off into abstract political theology? Now, by the way, keep state and church separate. No, he's saying, you give back to Caesar what's his. Yeah, that's okay. There's going to be a revolution you give to Caesar exactly what he deserves. But I'll tell you what, on the, on the picture of the coin is a, is a picture of Caesar who has uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. What does that make Tiberius Caesar? Son of God. And Jesus is saying, you want to know who really the son of God is, who the Messiah is? You render unto God that which is God's. That is, you give to me the loyalty that is due to God. You give Caesar his tax, sure, but you give to me what is truly God's. 
king and temple, Messiah and the blessing of God. That is Jesus' agenda as he walks into Jerusalem. He not only announces the reign of God, he enacts it and he enacts it in the place which is guaranteed most to get right up the noses of those who thought they had a mortgage on the authority and blessing of God. It was enough to get him murdered. Uh, At the end of chapter 22, we hear nothing more from the chief priests and the scribes for three chapters, 23, 24, 25, and next in chapter 26, verse 3, they gather in the palace of the high priest and conspire to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Now, it will turn out as we'll look in a couple of weeks' time that what they were doing was merely serving Jesus' purpose. That their killing of him, in fact, didn't stop Jesus, it forwarded Jesus' purpose. But for now we need to draw the threads together. Can I say, for those of us who are Christians here today, that is people who say Hosanna to the Son of David, who spread our lives before him as his obedient subjects, so he commands us, he is our king. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, how happy am I with Jesus' kingship in my life? How happy am I with Jesus' kingship in my life? Because he wants no other place. He's not your advisor. He's not your helper. He's not your assistant. He is your king. And there are two areas in which I think I want to particularly ask you to reflect on how happy you are with Jesus' kingship in your life. On the one hand, will you let Jesus be king of your conscience? Will you let Jesus be king of your conscience? Will you actually hand over to him the right to cleanse your conscience by the power of his death? We'll look at that, as I say, in a couple of weeks' time. And will you let Jesus be king in your life in all the detailed and nitty-gritty activity in which he commands you, trusting that his commands of you, his command of you to be honest when shaving the truth seems so much more attractive, his command of you to not take revenge when someone is bitching about you and backstabbing you and all you want to do is just kind of get your own back and you go, no, I won't because Jesus is my king. His command to you to not hog the glory of a group project but to share it as you ought to. His command of you not to bludge but to do your work hard as a blessing from God. Will you obey Jesus' commands trusting that his command of you is the command of a humble king, gentle, riding on a donkey, a humble king who commands for your good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as our king and we do spread our lives before you. And we ask that you would grant to us such faith that we would live faithfully in your lordship. We pray that you would be very glorified through us for your own great name's sake.